We're glad you're joining us here at NRCC Online. This is a recording of our community gathering as we do each week to think together about the spiritual journey. At the end of the lesson, we open the floor for discussion. We'd love to hear what you're thinking, too. Go to our community's Facebook page, post your thoughts. Our lesson last week saying that in the course of human history, a pattern emerges. Society undergoes some change. Sometimes that change is because we are solving a problem or fixing a pain point. Sometimes that change is because we're taking advantage of an opportunity. But for whatever the reason, society changes. When it does, we adjust. We make a correction to what we do. We make a correction to where our focus goes. And, of course, we do that. We are human beings. But it's just as human to not only adjust, we said, but to over-adjust. To not only correct, but to overcorrect. And it is a well-seen, well-understood pattern. We solve one problem only to have created another problem. So this is a lesson on problems that we may have created solving other problems. Things that might have been lost to the sands of time as we not just adjusted, but over-adjusted. Not just reacted, but overreacted. The title, Reclaiming Treasure, is to think about reclaiming things that we've lost along the way. Now, last week I gave an example from the last hundred years of American history. Too much focus on community in the early part of the century shifted from community to conformity. Ah, that's not good. So we reacted against being pressured into conformity. Then we overreacted. And then we moved too far toward individuality and we lost sight that all of us need to care for the common good together. And uh, if you missed that, that's the framing construct for this whole lesson. You can have a listen online. Today we're going to take a look at the Bible. Because many people that I know have stopped finding the Bible helpful, have stopped finding the Bible relevant. So maybe, we're going to see, uh, there is a treasure in there worth reclaiming. Okay, so... As we do, to give you some time to be thinking, uh, think about your own experience with the Bible. Maybe you've got a positive experience. If you can find one of those, let's think about that. Maybe you've had an empty experience or a non-helpful or even a negative experience with the Bible. If you would, as the lesson's going on, be thinking about that. And maybe imagine for a moment, if there was treasure to be reclaimed, what might that be as you approach the Bible? All right, so you'd be thinking on that as the lesson goes on. For a lot of folks, uh, we grew up with the Bible at the epicenter of our spiritual practice. Now, I also know that many of the people who grew up that way do not use the Bible anymore. Many of those would be you. And the pattern that we're looking at in this lesson would suggest that when the Bible became painful or when the Bible became empty, we reacted and perhaps we overreacted. We corrected, and perhaps we overcorrected. So first, let's think about what made it painful or what made it unhelpful, what we reacted against, because what we sure don't want to do is go back to what was painful in the first place. We want to move forward and not backwards, but what treasure might we find if we move forward? And for that, let's start back 500 years with this guy. Nicholas Copernicus. If you know Nick, you probably know him as a mathematician and an astronomer. He's the guy who showed us that the 
uh, sun does not rotate around the earth, but it's vice versa. And when he did, he turned the whole world on its head. It was called the Copernican Revolution, fundamentally changing our view of earth and of the planets and of the universe. But turns out the Copernican Revolution did more than change our view of planets in motion. It also changed a very instinctive feel that you and I have for the nature of truth. It got us thinking thoughts like, you know, the universe is governed by absolute laws, which means absolute laws exist. And what do you know? Absolute laws are absolute. And when they are absolute, they exist here and they exist there. They define reality now and they define reality then. So Copernicus and a whole bunch of other science revolutionaries upended our view, not only of the material world that we live in, the planetary world that we live in, but also upended how we think about stuff, how we think the world works, how we think about the nature of things, even the nature of truth. Now, at about the same time Nick was changing our world, some other people, also closely related to it, were upending our view of religion. Changing how we think about truth, sure enough, that's going to impact how we think about religion. A fundamental shift in the story that we tell ourselves about God, about human nature, about what makes the good life. And we call that upending, 500 years ago, the Reformation. In the new world that Copernicus gave us, Western religion looked up and said, we need to adapt. We need to figure out how to function in this newly emerging world. And you know what we really need? We need a tool. We really need that tool. If we're going to make religion work in the Copernicus world, we need a religion version of the telescope. Because Copernicus had a telescope. We need one. Copernicus could look through his telescope at night and he could see the planets as they would make their rotations. And he could make irrefutable observations about what was happening. And then he could explain irrefutably what it was that was happening. And he could do it with mathematic precision. And religion wanted to fit in to this new worldview and religion wanted a piece of the action. But that's a bit of a conundrum because what is religion's version of a telescope? Because religion isn't working with planets uh, hurtling through space. We're working with God, and we're working with sin, and we're working with what makes a good life. So how could religion come up with a source for irrefutable evidence about the nature of things, about the nature of the spiritual life? Well, thank you, history. Just when you, we needed it most, you sent us this guy. You sent us Martin Luther. And he said, well, here's your telescope, friends. Here's your irrefutable evidence. You get it in the scriptures. Now, before Martin Luther, the scriptures were important. They contained the story of a very long spiritual journey, generation after generation, accumulating wisdom along the way, invaluable wisdom. But Martin's pressing concern was getting religion to work in Copernicus's new world. 
and sola scriptura, just the ticket, just what we needed. Here is our telescope. Scripture and scripture only. That's what sola means. If, you, uh, if this is all you're ever going to need is just scripture. All the irrefutable data that you need, all the things you need to know about God, all the things you need to know about spiritual sola, only in the scripture. And it was really helpful. For lots and lots of people, for a very long time, it was really, really helpful. Because what it did is it gave us a religion that was so much better than the medieval version of religion. It helped us do our religion and plumb the depths of our religion in this new emerging Copernicus way of being uh, humans in the new emerging world. And that became our Reformation form of religion, sola scriptura. And then Luther died. And then the people in charge read what Luther wrote. And they began to venerate what he had written and venerate that religious revolution that had gone on in the 1500s. And they began to establish more and more firmly that, yes, Scripture is our telescope. It is the one and true source of wisdom. It's the only source of wisdom that we really need sola. And that went along swimmingly. It really did. It worked for a lot of people for a very long time, for about 350 years. There were not many objections in the ranks because it worked so well, because it matched the worldview so well. Religion needed a telescope. The scripture gave us a telescope. And now religion and the emerging worldview, hand in glove, worked like a charm until 1859. And in 1859, Darwin published The Origin of, the Speci Origin of Species. He didn't say it, but he implied it. You know, this Bible of yours, <laughs> it may not be the impeachable or irrefutable source that you think it is. Which was really hard for folks to swallow, because for 350 years it had been. And what, now it's not? Whoa, 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 that's slippery slope territory right there, Mr. Darwin. If the Bible is wrong about seven days of creation, what else is the Bible wrong about? Because you start down that path, Mr. Darwin, next thing you know, nothing is true, and who knows where we're going to end up. So around uh, 1898, about 30 years after Darwin, several folks got together at a conference somewhere near Niagara, New York, and they said, here's what we're going to have to do. We're going to have to draw a line. We better draw it firmly, and we better defend that line at all costs. And so we did. And we did it for a whole lot of years. Some folks are still defending that line. In a response to Darwin, they came up with a new doctrine. And that doctrine was called the inerrancy doctrine. And you might have run into it along the way if you grow up in the kind of church I grew up in. It says that the Bible is and the Bible always has been irrefutable truth. The Bible is and it always has been our telescope. We can rest confident that the Bible is without a single error. Every word and every sentence and every paragraph and every story, at least in the original languages, uh, completely without error, it is perfect, it is infallible. 
And that doctrine became the line that we drew in the sand in 1898. And about half of American Christians uh, bought that as the core foundation of their faith. The problem was that the doctrine made the Bible into a thing that we needed it to be, not what it really is. We needed irrefutable because Copernicus. We needed unimpeachable because Copernicus. And it felt so right when we made the Bible into that, again, what I said earlier, hand in glove, religion and worldview, so much so that we didn't even see that there were problems when we made the Bible into something that it was not. We were just blinded to that. Now, living today on this side of Copernicus, knowing what we do about quantum weirdness, knowing about uh, relativity, knowing all the things that we know on this side, we can see the truth might not even be, not Bible truth, just truth in general, might not be the absolute thing we once thought it was. Truth might be a little bit bendier than we thought truth was. It might be a little more relative, a little more uncertain than we thought it was. But we had had a fight. We'd been locked in a fight with Mr. Darwin for a long, long time. And when human beings fight, we end up staking ourselves on a position. And once we do that, it becomes very difficult to let that position go. It makes uh, it difficult to give up a position, even if the position is problematic, even if it makes plain sense, it's time to give up the position, we still are kind of locked in place. So we did not let that position go. We actually, after the 1920s, began to double down on it. We fought for what eventually became an unwinnable position. We did not admit to ourselves that we had made the Bible into something it never really was. We just fought for it. Now, we can be forgiven for doing that because we are human beings. And when human beings feel threatened, it's kind of what we do. We double down. We dig in. We entrench. And we did. And we actually begin to ratchet up our insistent our insistence that people venerate the Bible. We insisted of one another, you might have grown up in this church too, that we read it every day. Every day that we must read at least a chapter of the Bible. Because here's what you'll find there if you do, we were told. Irrefutable, unimpeachable. It's all you're ever going to need to know the will of God. It's all you're ever going to need to know the purpose of God. It's all you're ever going to know, need to know the wisdom of God. Everything you need, it's in the Bible. This guy's name is Frederick Buckner. I've heard it pronounced Beekner, but seems like Buckner to me. Uh, I think you should read every book this guy has ever written. He is one of my favorite authors. Searching for the quote that I'm going to show you in a minute, I found out that he died just last month. And uh, it was kind of sad, actually, when I found that out because uh, he really is a fantastic, was and a fantastic uh, author. Well, anyway, this guy, Frederick, whatever his last name is, loves the Bible. He thinks we should experience more of it, not less. And even so... <laughs> Listen to what he has to say when he describes the Bible. 
The Bible is a disorderly collection of 60-odd books written over the period of more than 3,000 years. The text is often tedious and barbaric and obscure. It is full of contradictions and inconsistencies. It's a swarming compost of a book, an Irish stew of poetry and propaganda, law and legalism, myth and murk, history and hysteria. There's more. It is full of barbarities and often fanatical nationalism. There are passages where God is interested in other nations only to the degree that he can use them to whip Israel into line. The Psalms are full of self-righteousness and self-pity. God hardens Pharaoh's heart only to turn around and clobber him for his hard-heartedness. And again, this guy loves the Bible. (laughs) But he also understands what it is. It is messy. And it does contain history and hysteria. When Darwin frightened us and we doubled down on infallible, when we kept insisting this is the only thing you're ever going to need, eventually, after we had invested a lot of time and a lot of energy and a lot of focus on sola, only the Bible, And it kept on not being able to do what we needed it to do when it kept on not giving us back the return on investment in energy and focus that we were making. Eventually, we just couldn't keep the Bible in the exalted position that we'd put it. We needed something more. Turns out there is, and there always has been, a whole lot more. That's a... uh, mistake of history that we zeroed in on only one of the aspects that the spiritual tradition gives us. You know, what we've got is we've got the circle. But anyway, another time. So when we realized that the Bible wasn't returning on our investment, we corrected. We adjusted. We acknowledged, ah, you know, he's right. Swarming compost, poetry, propaganda, often tedious, sometimes obscure. And when we correct it, given the framework that I've suggested last week, you might suspect what happens next. Good chance we over-corrected, a good chance we over-adjusted. And maybe there's some lost treasure that we don't want to lose. So Martin says, sola, all you're ever going to need. We start using the Bible like a telescope irrefutable observations, irrefutable facts. Problem is, the folks down the street are doing the same thing. And they're making different irrefutable observations, and they're finding different irrefutable facts. And when they do, we say, whoa, 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 we can't go to church with you anymore. You've got God all wrong. 41,000 times we've done that. Whoa, can't go to church with you anymore because you're a damn heretic. And now we need to start a different denomination. Uh, actually, no, we don't. You need to start a different <laughs> denomination because we're kicking you out. <laughs> now, I did not hear this until the early 80s. And I was a church kid. I grew up in church. I don't know why I didn't run into it until I was in my 20s. But there's a movement that's been afoot for a long time uh, to not use the Bible as a telescope to not use it as a quest for irrefutable. It's called narrative theology when you go to seminary. It's jargon you do not need to know, but the basic, uh, basically it means there is an art f- to using the Bible, not looking for facts, but instead looking for story. 
finding in these ancient texts a meaning-making narrative. Have you heard me say that phrase before? When we approach it that way, it turns out that the scriptures are a treasure, and they are a treasure worth reclaiming. In and amongst the swarming compost, there is a beautiful story, and that story has an arc, and that arc is unfinished. There's a clear trajectory to it, but it's an arc on which you and I can find ourselves. Now, the Bible is not shy about how bad things can be. There is cause for hopelessness. There is cause for despair. Sure there is. The scriptures are very honest about the ugly, ugly, ugly parts of life. There's lots of enslavement in those pages, lots of rape, lots of murder, lots of bigotry, lots of malice, plenty of political uh, oppression, all the human ugly that there is is prominently displayed in our texts. We would be hard-pressed if we were to read this story to say that our worst days are worse, the worst than their worst days. But there's something else in that story as well. When we find the arc of this narrative, there is this recurring refrain. It comes back again and again and again. For all of the 3,000 years that it took to gather this story, for all of the different nations in which it was written, for all of the different worldviews that it contained, all the wildly different views of God, not even a consistent view of what God is, what makes the good life completely different as you go from one culture to another, but there is this recurring frame, and it is an honest recurring refrain. It says, yes, it's bad. But bad is not the final word. Yes, it is dark. But dark is not the final word. Yes, it is ugly. Not the final word. If we approach the Bible as a telescope or as a newspaper or as an encyclopedia looking for irrefutable facts, eh, maybe there is some value. I tend to think not very much value. But if we approach the Bible looking for a meaning-making story and looking for the wisdom of the experience of those who have gone before, generation after generation, who have found something, who have experienced something, there is treasure. People who in the throes of all the ugly that life can dish out found that central throbbing heartbeat of the spiritual life that it is hope. It is hope. It is hope. It is hope. And if we position ourselves in that same arc of history, on that same pathway, we discover that the Bible can, and can do it very, very well, can evoke in us movement toward deep spiritual experience of our own. It can especially help us find hope in our dark times. I hope you have, or I hope you will, uh, learn the basic stories of the Bible. Sure enough, they're a compost. You'll run into all kinds of crazy. Stuff you can't possibly understand, removed as you are from the ancient world of the Middle East. But knowing the stories and having basic biblical literacy, it's a great foundation for your future. 
there's a lot that we can learn about the ancient world and we can understand some of the things that seem so obscure and so difficult. There's plenty of places you can learn that. But it starts with basic Bible literacy. Knowing the stories and knowing how they fit together. What happened to Abraham and why did it happen? How does Abraham connect to Moses? What happened in Egypt and how does what happened in Egypt still linger today in, in our own experience? What were the prophets profiting about? How does Jesus fit into some ancient patterns but break other ancient patterns and why did he, why does he? Knowing the stories because in the end, the Bible is a treasure, a part worth reclaiming as much, in as much as it helps us toward our own experience. And stories are about one of the most uh, profound ways that human beings experience. We experience in stories. I've told this story before. In my 20s, I was in a very deep depression. I never attempted suicide, but I did plan how I was going to commit suicide. And there was one year in that decade where suicidal thoughts were the dominant thing in my mind at least four times every week. Now, during that time, I did keep going to class, but I never talked to anyone while I was there. And I did keep showing up for my night job where I was stacking produce for the next morning, but again, never talked to anybody. I was very, very alone for a very long time, and I was very depressed. So most hours of most days, I would lay on the floor in my room and I would stare at my ceiling and I would hurt. And it was stone in my chest kind of hurt. When I wasn't on the floor, I had a beat up garage sale recliner, an ugly version of 70s green. <laughs> I would also sit on that. And it was in that chair, the memory is still quite vivid, that I determined one day that I would not end my life. The thought did come up that it probably wouldn't matter anyway because I assumed anyone living with as much pain as I was living in wouldn't live long anyway, but I made that determination on that day that I will not end my life. When I made that determination, I did so with a very, very faint echo way in the back of my mind from a Bible story. It was this one. It was the story of Joseph. The story of Joseph has always been a meaningful story for me. It, story, it, as stories do, has been elastic. It has stretched as my life has stretched. It has meant different things to me at different stages of my life. But on that day, in that pain, when all I could hear was a very, very faint whisper way in the back of my mind, an echo of a story that I once knew, that faint whisper held me. And it told me, it's bad. Bad is not the final word. And it is dark. But dark is not the final word. And it is ugly. But ugly is not the final word. That was four years before my depression lifted. Unlike a lot of people, my depression lifted all at once in a two-day period. I told the story about that in the book, Rethinking Our Story. I think it's the last chapter of the book. But maybe what I don't think I said in the book was what happened after I had that experience. So I had borrowed my father-in-law's trailer 
and I had parked it out on an abandoned horse ranch somewhere in central California, and I had been fasting, and I'd been fasting for several days, and then I had that experience that I tell about in the book. But when that experience was over, I was walking down to the old barn where, there, where the horses used to be, and I was going down there because uh, there was a hose, <laughs> and I stunk, and I needed to go shower myself off. And that walk was about two or 300 yards. So I imagine it was a three-minute, maybe a four-minute walk. And on that day, walking from this trailer down to the horse barn, that green chair and me sitting in it came flooding back into my mind. And as it did, words began to bounce around inside of my mind. Words that said, that day made this day possible. That commitment that you made sitting on that chair on that day, I'm just going to keep putting one foot in front of another. I'm probably going to die young anyway, but I'm going to keep going. That day made this day. But here's the thing. What made that day, what made that day was that ever so faint echo of a story I once knew. That story was still in there still framing the construct of my life. That was the day that positioned me on the arc of this story, the arc that has been found by so many, many people before me. It's bad, but bad isn't the final word. It's dark, but dark isn't the final word either. That story that really was embedded in the accumulated experience of so many who had gone before me, that made this and so I hope you will gain I hope you will pursue basic biblical literacy but more than that I hope as you find in the exercise stitching together the narrative so you understand the arc of the narrative you can see the narrative I hope you find your place in that arc because it's a profound story it's a powerful story it is not irrefutable facts. It is not irrefutable observations. It is not a telescope. But what it is, is precious and profound and transformative. So, lots of ways to gain Bible literacy. <laughs> we give our kids a storybook when they go into school. If uh, your child started school, especially during the pandemic, we didn't do that ritual that we do every January, and so they might not have gotten the book. We've, I asked Shelby this morning, we've got a few of them, so when you pick your kids up, ask, and she'll give you the two that we don't. If, you don't, if we don't have enough, uh, we will order some more because it's time to start doing those rituals again anyway, and uh, we'll get some of those books back. But it's a great way to give your children a basic understanding of the stories. Sometimes that's a little problematic. That's why we chose this version of the book. Because if you tell your children the story of Noah's Ark, here's the story you tell your children. God promised he'd never do it again. But once he did kill every mom and every dad and every puppy dog and every kitty cat. Yeah, he did that once. So be afraid. Be very afraid. <laughs> So maybe we need to think about how we tell the stories to our children, <laughs> but we do need to tell the stories to our children. Also, Walter Wangerin wrote the arc of that whole story into a novel. Uh, it's good, 
Uh, it's not a great novel, but it will give you basic understanding of how the story goes. It'll give you the structure, the beginning, the middle, and the end, and it'll help you understand where you fit in the ark. It'll help you understand who the prophets are and what they were doing and why they were doing it and who, what they were responding to. Uh, it'll help you find yourself in the story. I hope you will. So in Dwelling Divine, reclaiming treasure may we, and may we access whatever it is that gets lost along the way in the quest for transformation. Amen. Well, uh, if you would, prepare your offerings. Yep. Uh, we all donate online now. The button is at the top of our website, commonthreadchurch.org. Lots of options, lots of ways to give. If you're here in Raleigh or if you're far away, we invite you to take an ownership stake in the community, remembering what I say all the time. There is good return when we invest in community. We give our time and we give our energy and we give our love and we give our dollars and then the community takes those resources, amplifies them and gives them back to us in the form of a context, an environment in which we thrive and grow and are transformed. So on our website, it's about as easy as it can be. Uh, let's uh, keep supporting. And by the way, uh, I saw the report. I said this a couple weeks ago. I saw the report from last month. Yeah, we haven't gone under budget in a long time. We went under budget. I imagine Matt's going to send out an email. This is not the time for us to be going under budget, people. We're going to have to figure out a whole bunch of stuff in the next few weeks about where we're going to move, and it's going to cost us money. So, damn it, get in there and donate. <laughs> yeah, that's about as hard as we push for money. <laughs> now, in a minute, we're going to dismiss the live stream, folks. And uh, those of you who are online, we're going to invite you to do what we do here in the room. We're going to do what are you thinking, and we would invite you to do it too, only just on Zoom. So the link is on the front page of our website, and if you've hung in there this long, we always tell you the password. It is the first four numbers of our street address, 1417. I wonder what it's going to be when we move. So don't be a troll. 1417 is the password. It's a great way to connect and to think more deeply about the lesson, so I hope you'll join in. Let us dismiss the folks online. If you would, please put your hand on your heart and remember as, let us remember as we go that we are, every one of us, carriers of the indwelling divine what we called in the old days the Holy Spirit. It is in us, breathed into us at the very beginning of time. We are animated by it. We're made of uh, stardust. We're made of God dust. That's in us. That means that love and joy and peace, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, those things are in us. Sometimes hard to find, but they're there. And if you would, extend your other hand to our city. Let's look for opportunities to share what's already in us with the people that we live and work and go to school with, looking for opportunities to repair our world, to heal our worlds. Amen. God bless you all. You are dismissed. Those of us here, we are not dismissed. Here's what we are going to do. We are going to stand up and say good morning to one another, shake hands, say, uh, what's your name? And after we've done that for a little while, I'm going to ring a bell and then... If these recordings help you move forward on your spiritual journey, we hope you'll take an ownership stake in the community and support the health and well-being of the community. You can go to our website, NorthRaleighCommunityChurch.org. The donate button is at the top of the page on your computer's browser, at the bottom on your phone's browser. Thank you.